You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Scuttlebutt, Hartman, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Gingrich, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Matt, Willie P., Thomas, Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Scarlet Dawn, the Admiral Benbow, Lisa, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Jacob, Axios, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Gangsway Sally, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I told you last time that we were going to talk about William Kidd meeting Edward Barlow. We were going to talk about all the drama that that entails. So today, I want you to ignore that. Pretend it didn't happen. For the time being, William Kidd and the men of the Adventure Galley were busy baking in the hot Arabian sun, waiting for several weeks, in fact, and dreaming of nothing so much as a fresh cold beer. Not a whole lot going on there. So while they wait, we're going to look at some important piracy that I kind of skipped over. We shifted from talking about Henry Every and the pirates that captured the Ganji Sawai almost immediately over to William Kidd, which makes sense chronologically. In 1696, William Kidd was getting his affairs in order for this voyage. But then we continued on with Kidd and skipped over some of the more important and certainly relevant stories of the Pirates of the Round. Henry Every and his fleet attacked the Gunsway in 1695, and here we are in 1697 at almost the exact same location. But what happened in 1696? This is episode 249, Pirates of All Parts. I want to begin today with a warning. This is a complicated story. There are a lot of 
conflicting accounts of this story. Certainly, some of those are based on lies told in later testimonies, and some of our primary sources seem to get some of the facts wrong. That is to say that these versions all contradict each other, and thus our modern sources are also conflicted. Modern writers and respected historians all tell different versions of this story, and they're all valid. Now, I've tried and honestly failed to parse out the facts here. The fact is, there are too many conflicts to make every version of this story make sense. So, probably I shouldn't tell this story. In the first draft I did, there were a ton of moments when I had to stop and say, this guy said this, but that guy said that, and who knows which is true, and it really started to irk me. The root of the problem here, the biggest problem anyway, is that there are records that discuss a pirate captain Robert Glover and others that discuss a Captain Richard Glover. These two names may or may not be the same person. I literally cannot find two sources that agree on every angle to this story. Which was which? Who was on what ship and at what point? I mean, no one knows. So I probably shouldn't tell this story, and I almost didn't, but it is worth talking about. It's going to seriously impact the East India Company in our overall story, so here's what's going to happen. I'm going to tell you the story as I see it, the bones of the story at least. Some of the jigsaw pieces don't quite fit, but you know, if you really cram them in there, the picture almost looks like it matches. When it becomes relevant to the story, I will discuss the contradictions. And at some point, we are going to have to disassemble and reassemble this whole narrative in the interest of intellectual honesty. But for now, I'm going to tell you the story as I think it might have happened. Just remember that this is my interpretation of these events, and there could absolutely be sources out there to which I am not privy. So take it all with a grain of salt. When the relevant bits come up, I'll point those out. To begin with, we're going to need to go back to 1694. In November of that year, Governor of New York, Benjamin Fletcher, granted a privateering commission to at least one Captain Glover. I think that he actually granted two commissions to two Captains Glover, Robert and Richard, though not both of them in 1694. In this version of the story, my version, remember, he first granted a commission to privateer Captain Robert Glover. Robert Glover was a mostly honest privateer. There were the occasional accusations that he failed to properly report on his seizures or one report suggests that he sold upwards of 20 French vessels taken in the West Indies and didn't report a single one to the government. But mostly he was capturing French prizes in a time of war, so no significant legal troubles there. Now, about a year before he got his commission from Governor Fletcher, he was operating on one from Jamaica, he was dragged into court by a Captain Erasmus Harrison. Harrison, in his sloop the Dolphin, cruised the coasts of Canada in consort with Captain Robert Glover. Glover was in his own sloop, 
but at one point he managed to capture an impressive 200-ton, 18-gun, 200-man French frigate. Now, Harrison was not around when Glover engaged the frigate, but both men had previously agreed to split all prizes equally. Glover, though, changed his tune with his shiny new ship in hand. When they returned to Rhode Island, Harrison sued Glover, but it had been a gentleman's agreement, a handshake deal, and without any sort of legally binding contract, the admiralty found in favor of Robert Glover. He got to keep his fantastic new ship. While he was in Providence with his ship in hand, Robert Glover outfitted her. He added a few more guns and he renamed her Resolution. And that's, I mean, that's quite a name. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but when the court finally found in his favor, when they resolved the issue, he calls his ship Resolution, just really giving the middle finger to Captain Harrison. Then he sailed on to New York, where the governor was apparently pretty free with the commissions. His brother-in-law, also from Providence, a man named John Hoare, followed him to New York and secured his own commission for the 200-ton 16-gun John and Rebecca. Now, you may remember these two names. We talked about them some time back. I told you that they were going to become relevant someday, and, well, today is that day. The two brothers-in-law spent a few weeks in New York, planning their voyage and recruiting crewmen. It was around the beginning of 1695 that they finally set out for the West Indies. You may also remember the Martinetian escaped slave named Abraham Samuel, who would go on to be elected as the quartermaster on board John and Rebecca. Abraham Samuel escaped his enslavement, probably killed a couple of men in doing so, and signed on with John Hoare. This is when and where that happened, but now things are going to get complicated. About six months later, According to Adam Baldridge, the proprietor of the pirate settlement at St. Mary's Island, on the 6th of August, 1695, a one Richard Glover arrived at St. Mary's on board the Charming Mary. He traded for some goods and set off again. Now, that's what Adam Baldridge tells us, and I have no reason to believe that he was lying about it, or purposefully obfuscating the truth. But what was going on at this point with the Resolution and the John and Rebecca? There were a few small-scale attacks in the Caribbean and on the west coast of Africa, while those two ships would have been headed for the Cape. That could have been their doing, but nobody's really sure. Mostly they were just raiding fishing vessels for food or small merchant craft for wine, that kind of thing. I think that about the time they rounded the Cape, about the time that Abraham Samuel was elected quartermaster, I think that the two brothers-in-law had a disagreement about their mission. Their voyage had originally been, I believe, an interloping voyage. They were here to trade for slaves, illegally, and bring them back to New York. And I think that's what the resolution under Robert Glover intended to do. John Hoare, on the other hand, it appears, intended to engage in some piracy. 
We shouldn't read too much into the politics or the morality of the men on board the John and Rebecca, but they did just elect a man of African descent as their quartermaster, their representative. They may not have been on board with the whole slavery thing. Whatever the case, though, it does appear that these two ships split up about the time they rounded the Cape, sometime in September 1695. Hoare would sail on to St. Augustine Bay, and Robert Glover would sail on to the Comoros Islands, and he would put in for wood and water at the island of Mayat. That island was the same island on which, just a few weeks earlier, Joseph Farrow's Portsmouth Adventure had been wrecked. Joseph Farrow and the Portsmouth Adventure, of course, were there when Henry Every engaged the Gunsway. Once that job was done, they sailed together. Now, when Portsmouth Adventure wrecked, Captain Every took on about half of the Portsmouth Adventure's crew, including Captain Farrow. But the rest just weren't going to fit on the fancy. That other half of the crew, under their quartermaster named Dirk Chivers, elected to wait at Mayotte. And here, Robert Glover on the resolution picked them up. They sailed on to somewhere. We don't really know. We don't hear from the resolution for a little while. Meanwhile, though, the John and Rebecca was gathering a crew at St. Augustine Bay. Now, this would have been a blend of pirates. There would have been a few old sea dogs from the crew of the Signet or Bachelor's Delight. But there would have been some men there from Every's expedition as well. In particular, sailors that had sailed on Thomas Wake's Susanna. The John and Rebecca filled up her crew and sailed on to the Gulf of Aden. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In the meantime, Richard Glover's Charming Mary. Richard Glover, remember, was not affiliated in any way with these other two ships, but the Charming Mary had filled her holds with human beings. They had picked up slaves at St. Mary's and probably also at Reunion Island, 
but then, preparing to return home, they sailed on to St. Augustine Bay. It was the last place that a ship carrying illegal human cargo could hope to take on wood and water for some time. But then, it was at this moment that the Amity arrived on the scene. Thomas II's ship, before Thomas II had been killed, was in bad shape. She had been engaged in battle, and though she won, she had been pretty severely damaged. So the Amity limped to Adam Baldridge's pirate fortress. But, under the Amity's sailing master, John Ireland, they made it and were able to make some much-needed repairs. Baldridge, though apparently, tipped them off that this fat, slow slave ship called the Charming Mary was sailing for St. Augustine Bay as we speak. It was incredibly dishonest, of course, but, you know, pirates. The Amity, though, decided that this prize was too good to pass up, so she sailed on to intercept the Charming Mary and apparently they succeeded in catching her. The pirates under John Ireland secured their prize. Now, they were really only interested in the ship, the Charming Mary. She was in much better condition than the Amity, and they could outfit her to be a proper pirate ship. They really didn't care about the slaves. They were valuable, sure, but, you know, you had to feed them and stuff. So they gave Captain Richard Glover the Amity and let him take his slaves with him. Now this, according to the reports we have, happened in December 1695. But at just about that same moment, on the 29th of December 1695, Robert Glover, of the Resolution, returned to St. Mary's, but not on his own ship. Instead, he was on a small Mughal ketch called the Rajapura. She was tiny. She didn't have any guns, any big guns at least, and Robert Glover only had 24 men with him. Something untoward had happened to Robert Glover and the resolution between the time that he picked up those men on Mayotte and here upon his return to St. Mary's. You know, it's really never a good idea when you have a crew full of New York privateers to take on a further 60 outright pirates. And I'm sure at first it was great. More hands means less work. It also means smaller shares on a privateer, but that's a fair trade to a point. Unfortunately, the former crew of the Portsmouth Adventure was not here for slave trading. They wanted to get back to some piracy. So for a couple of weeks, they ingratiated themselves with the crew. Clearly, these were good seamen. They knew their business but they also began to discuss what they had been about before they were picked up. And before long, they convinced nearly the entire crew of the resolution that piracy was easy, profitable, and fun. At some point, and I'm unclear where this happened, but at some point the crew delivered an ultimatum to Captain Robert Glover. They told him that they wanted to hunt some Moorish shipping. Robert Glover, under duress, it should be admitted, agreed to do so. So the resolution roamed the Indian Ocean and the Gulf of Aden, but it was too late in the year for there to be any real traffic of worth to them. So they sailed on to the east, toward India, but their luck really didn't improve. 
the only ship of any consequence whatsoever that they managed to find and capture was this catch, the Rajapura. And it was at this point that, well, what happens becomes a bit unclear. It's usually characterized as a mutiny, and that's technically accurate. The resolution belonged to Robert Glover. He won that suit back in Rhode Island that said so, remember? We shouldn't think of it, though, as a mutiny like that on board the Charles II, or the Hispaniola, in Treasure Island. This wasn't the mutiny on the bounty. A cadre of crewmen did not slip into the armory and arm themselves with every weapon available and then start killing all the officers and guards until they had the ship in their hands. That's not what happened. According to Captain Glover, the crew demanded they go on the account. They wanted to hunt some ships, after all. But Robert Glover, a good, God-fearing, and morally upright English subject, refused to do so. So he and twenty-four other loyal men were put on board the Rajapura and set adrift. Now that account sounds a bit self-serving, for my taste. It, for example, fails to explain why they had the Rajapura in the first place. Or the timetable, or what the resolution was doing in Indian waters anyway. I think that the crew decided to put the captaincy to a vote. Which, of course they did. The crew was made up from pirates from the Portsmouth Adventure and privateers from Rhode Island and New York. They believed in the inherent democracy of a ship at sea, and their captain was not getting the job done. They voted Captain Glover out and voted in Dirk Chivers as the captain. And I should address this here. Dirk Chivers is the accepted name given to this pirate, but there are variations. You see a number of different varieties, but according to at least one document I've seen, yes, he could be called Dick Shivers. Regardless, he was voted in as the captain, but the timing here is a bit strange. I want to acknowledge that it's at least possible that Dirk Chivers was already the captain. Maybe at some point when we had lost contact with the ship, he was voted in and Robert Glover was voted out, but they were still on board. You know, you're not going to maroon them. They didn't do anything horrific and evil to you, so he was just along for the ride. Once they had the Rajapura in their hands, though, Robert Glover and his loyalists were able to leave. But either way, at this point, Robert Glover was on the Rajapura, sailing for St. Mary's, so let's catch up a bit. Dirk Chivers was in command of Resolution. John Hoare was still on the John and Rebecca. Richard Glover was on the Amity. Robert Glover on the tiny little Rajapura. And John Ireland was on the Charming Mary. But the Charming Mary had voted in a new captain of her own, Richard Bobbington. You can see why this story can get complicated to understand, much less to try to tell. There's a lot of ship-switching and captain-electing going on that makes it difficult, also, the two Glovers. But for the time being, everyone apparently decided to winter on or around Madagascar. Now, one has to ask, how much credence do we give to the idea of a pirate utopia on Madagascar? Libertalia did not exist. 
No one had written up a declaration of their new anarchist pirate utopia, but there were an awful lot of pirates on Madagascar at the time. An author named Jan Rogozinski wrote a book called Honor Among Thieves, Captain Kidd, Henry Every, and the Pirate Democracy in the Indian Ocean. It's not a bad book by any means. It's a great resource for a lot of topics that are under-discussed elsewhere, but I do have some issues with it, especially in this story. However, the book does build an argument, a compelling argument, that there really was a pirate democracy in the Indian Ocean. Rogozinski writes in the aftermath of the attack on the gunsway of the pirates on Madagascar, quote, The St. Mary's men that joined in attacking the gunsway probably did not care what the London mob thought of their exploits. The raid increased the island's prosperity and the happiness of its inhabitants. Many of those on the fancy took their Indian gold and gems back to their island paradise. Although not quite accurate, the many legends of Henry Every and the Indian princess enclose a kernel of truth. The fancy's crew did not need to steal Indian wives. Once they had the Gunsway's gold, the Malagasy princesses were delighted to become their brides. End quote. And, you know, he's not wrong about that. I do doubt that every pirate from the fancy or any of the other ships involved in the raid married princesses, but a bunch of them did marry Malagasy women, and many of them women of influence. And this was beyond just, oh, she's beautiful, young, and rich, I want to marry her. I'm sure that played a part in it, but they were political marriages as much as anything else. It tied the kings and the local tribal rulers to the pirates. These politics would play out on Madagascar in the years to come in devastating ways. And there's a bunch of different sources that support this was the case, but one stands out to me, particularly today. It's a report by a ship's doctor named Henry Watson, and Watson is about to become very important to our narrative. Watson said, regarding Adam Baldridge and Lawrence Johnston and all of the pirates of Madagascar in general, quote, These two are both of them married to country women by which he means women from Madagascar, and many of the others are married at Madagascar. They have a kind of fortification of seven or eight guns upon St. Mary's. Their design in marrying the country women is to ingratiate themselves with the inhabitants, with whom they go to war against other petty kings. End quote. What Rogozinski is talking about here, and what a decent amount of his book is discussing, is that there really was a settlement on Madagascar. Not just a few shanties filled with drunken pirates on the beach, but a real village. Women and children, fortifications, agriculture, things like that. They had no laws except for those that had been agreed to by everyone. They had no rulers because the pirates were not necessarily beholden to the Malagasy. They had no masters above them. They had you know, real freedom. They had equality, even. And I'm talking about almost real equality, regardless of race or class, even for some extent to the women on the island. It's a beautiful idea. Certainly an intoxicating sentiment, much more than the picture sometimes painted of the Madagascar pirates of, you know, a couple dozen drunken rapists and slave owners. I would very much like to believe 
Rogozinski here, but I can't quite get there. Not a hundred percent, anyway. You know, the truth, as usual, is probably somewhere in the middle. Do I believe that the pirate utopia on Madagascar was an egalitarian paradise? Well, no. I mean, everything about the pirates, to this point, and what's to come, of course, does lead me to the conclusion that there were equal votes and equal shares and even equity for people of color and women. That was all probably part of their society, but you had to be part of their society. If you were from a rival tribe of Malagasy, or God help you French, or from mainland Africa, well then, theft and torture and slavery and murder, that was still very much on the table, as we are about to see. At this point, once spring has sprung and the winds are back in the favor of the pirates on Madagascar, this story that had thus far been complicated gets tossed into a blender and turned into indecipherable sludge. What I'm about to tell you is the best mess I can make out of this story. But I'll let you know that you can read other versions of it in Ragazinski's book, or in Richard Zack's The Pirate Hunter, or from Adam Baldridge, or from this one East India Company official, or from the testimony of that surgeon, Henry Watson. They all have the same outline, but the details are all different. The one undeniable through-line is the John and Rebecca, under John Hoare. We know that in the summer of 1696, he sailed up to the Bab el-Mandeb to lie in wait for Arabian shipping. Now, we don't know if he encountered any ships from the Pilgrim fleet, but we do know that he didn't engage any ships that summer. After all, the summer after Henry Every and Thomas II had sacked so many of their vessels in such destructive fashion, the Pilgrim fleet would have sailed in strength with a formidable East India Company escort. But in August 1696, about the time that the Pilgrim fleet would have been sailing back south through the Babs, John Hoare did attack two ships. Not treasure fleet ships, at least not from the Mughal Empire. These were two East India Company merchantmen that probably had planned to return with the entire fleet, but were lagging behind. They were called the Calicut and the Ruparel, the Ruparel under a Captain John Sawbridge. These two ships were captured with ease. I doubt they had any big guns on board at all, they planned to sail with warships, after all, so why bother? Instead, they were loaded with hundreds of tons of coffee beans, all of it purchased at Mocha. Now, pirates knew that coffee was valuable, but maybe they didn't grasp just how large a treasure they had. Or maybe they just had no way to move that much coffee. I mean, any English merchant in the world would have been ecstatic to see such a windfall walk through his door, including Adam Baldridge. But these pirates were after silver and gold. Most East India Company ships were crewed by Indians, while Englishmen served as officers, and these two were no different. Once they had taken the ships, the pirates from the John and Rebecca questioned the Indian crewmen, who did speak a little English, and the pirates asked them about any hidden treasures on board. Where was your treasury, your gold? You know, where's the money? And you can see why the pirates might assume that these Indians would be willing to help them out. 
why would they lie to help their English masters? But these Indians didn't have an answer for the pirates, so rather than accept the obvious conclusion that there wasn't any treasure, or that, at the very least, the Indians didn't know about it, the pirates turned to torture. None of our sources go into any detail about what happened to these poor Indian sailors, but you know, torture is never fun. When that still didn't return any answers, the pirates ransacked the ships again. But no treasure, just coffee. Now, here's where things start to get really complicated. At this time, Dirk Chivers showed up in the Resolution, and I'm pretty sure that's what actually happened, but there are others who will tell you it was Robert Glover in the Resolution, which doesn't fit with what is about to happen, and there are still others that will say it was Richard Glover in the Resolution, which makes no sense at all. In his end notes to Honor Among Thieves, Jan Rogozinski writes, quote, In his testimony, Baldridge said Glover and the Indian ship arrived at St. Mary's on December 19, 1695. But the sequence of events makes it clear that 1696 is the correct date. End quote. Now, I don't think that's right. Here's why I think he's wrong. First of all, Baldridge did not say that a Robert Glover arrived on December 19. It was December 29. A small point, but I'm going to make it anyway. Second, that's not just a testimony of Robert Glover. He's not recalling the facts as best he can. That's Adam Baldridge reading his log. Those are his account ledgers that he kept on St. Mary's. The next couple of entries in his log come from January and February 1696. So, why would December 1696 come directly before? I think that what's happening here, and it's easy to do, I did it myself, was conflating the accounts of Robert Glover and Richard Glover. It wasn't until I started parsing the account of that surgeon, Henry Watson, who, you know, Jan Rogozinski does as well, but I think we came to different conclusions about what he was writing, as well as the East India Company officials after the fact. As I said, the different versions of this story are all valid, but this is the one that makes the most sense to me. So why don't we look at what Dr. Watson had to say? When the pirates were unable to find any treasure on board these two East India Company ships, and when the Resolution arrived on the scene, they attempted another tactic. The pirates attempted to ransom the two ships, but the way they did so is pretty dumb. These two ships had bought coffee at Mocha, coffee that was paid for in full, it was no longer the property of the Arabians in Mocha. So, at Aden, in the Gulf of Aden, not, by the way, the city of Mocha, the pirates sent two Indian messengers ashore to tell them that if these Arabians, who were not from Mocha, did not pay a lot of money, then the pirates would burn the ships. East India Company ships, filled with East India Company coffee. It's not a great plan. But there's more. I think that the pirates thought the Indians would be able to communicate with the people of Aden, 
They are Moorish, after all. But if that was their assumption, I don't know that they realize the Indians did not speak the language of the Mughal upper class, usually. You know, diplomats, translators, and such, but your average sailor, he spoke an Indian dialect. What's more, the Muslim Mughal ruling class did not speak Arabic. The Mughals spoke a Persian dialect. So these Indians were like three languages removed from these Arabians. But then, threatening to burn those ships that belonged to the English full of coffee that belonged to the English in front of Arabians who did not own the coffee in the first place, why did they assume that these Arabians would care? The Indians that the pirates sent to the mainland never came back. And it's not like they were arrested or killed or anything, they just didn't go back. But then, a shot from the city. Now, the pirates were well out of range. This was to get the pirates' attention. But when night fell, all the pirates paying attention now, two bonfires appeared on the shore. It was a signal to go ahead and burn the ships. And the pirates did so. But first, they sailed the two East India Company ships in close. They raised the King's Jack high so everyone could see it, and then they lit their ships aflame. Which, I mean, cool message, bro, I guess. Fight the power, you know, but do you really think the Arabs here are going to care about that? Why? Why are they bothering with this? It makes... Very little sense to me. What is to follow? Well, there's not a lot of story left. The pirates, frustrated, sailed back to Madagascar. There was a bit more ship switching and captain swapping, and that we'll talk about eventually when it becomes relevant. But this attack in 1696 was the major event of the season. Next time we're going to talk about the effect that this piracy had on the East India Company and on Captain Kidd. So I'll leave you today with a passage from an East India Company letter written to Whitehall in England. It reads, quote, Horrible clamors are aroused by pirates from all parts, which are unanimously reported to be English. If care be not taken to suppress pirates in India and to empower the company's servants to punish them, the said servants fear it probable that their throats will be cut by malefactors and, moreover, the trade in India will be wholly lost. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. You all make this possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to listen to some of their other shows, such as the Explorers Podcast, which I heartily recommend, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
Tonight 